Hello, I'm Peter Laws, and this is a sermon-only episode of the Creepy Cove Community Church podcast. If you'd like to hear the full church service, complete with strange comedy, special guests, and notices like you've never heard before, then all the shows are available for free. Just visit creepycove.com to find out more. But if you just want to hear a sermon, a time of quiet reflection, and a song, then this is for you. I'd be grateful if you could check out patreon.com forward slash creepycove to find out how you can support the show and get lots of exclusive member benefits. But for now, I'll shut up. Here's your sermon. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Firstly, I want to say how impressed I am with Bob's artistry. I've been a big fan of you, Bob, for ages, and um, it's uh, great to have you with us. And um, also your comments, actually, about loving nature, even the ravenous werewolves that stalk the forests of our town. Well, you know, that's really quite powerful and challenging. And it actually conveniently and totally unexpectedly ties in with tonight's topic, which is a continuation of what we looked at last time, which is why loving your enemies makes a weird sort of sense. Now, um, this can confuse many people because it can appear, the idea of loving enemies can appear to be both naive, stupid, dangerous, you know, to forgive people who've hurt us. Well, um, to show some sort of love to them, it sounds madness. But if you remember last time, we made some, I think, fairly interesting points. For a start, we learned that when someone hurts us, we might spend a lot of energy hating them as an enemy, which can make a lot of sense and is totally understandable. But practically speaking, that bitterness doesn't really affect them as much as it affects us. It's like we can get hooked to that person. It can be like a poison. And we talked about how when we forgive someone, it's kind of like setting a prisoner free, but then realizing the prisoner was us. We learned that loving others doesn't mean we do away with law and order or justice. So, um, you know, we can still call the police on someone and be loving towards them at the same time. It certainly doesn't mean that what they did to us is okay. And we also learned um, that loving others doesn't have to be all about emotion. And in fact, it's usually about action. We don't even have to feel any positivity emotionally towards a person before we make a step towards forgiveness or love. Rather, we talked about love being an act of the will which can actually help us to get on with our lives, rather be churned up with bitterness. Well, let's look at a few other points about this topic based on the passage we've had read to us, because I think this idea of loving your enemies is a, is a pretty fascinating one. And um, the first one to say is this, when it comes certainly to religion and spirituality, loving your enemies is actually a good system. In a world of serial killers and terrorists and bullies, Sort of doesn't sound quite right to love people like that, especially if those close to us have been affected by those sorts of crimes or incidents. The love your enemy system can seem absurd to most people. Uh, for example, when I first became a Christian, this is like in my early 20s or so, I was sitting watching TV with a, a friend of mine who wasn't a Christian, and um, we were watching this news report, and it featured a Christian mother a Christian mum whose son had been stabbed in a gang fight. And um, this was a horrible story because this, this son died. And yet what was really remarkable that got my attention was that this woman was being interviewed saying that she forgave the boy who killed her son and that actually she went to the court on the day he was being sentenced 
and went over to him and hugged him and said, I'll be here for you. I hate what you did, but I'm going to be here for you to try and kind of help you rehabilitate. And I remember, you know, I, I had only been a Christian for a short time, but but I knew that this forgiveness thing was, was, was a thing in Christianity. And I remember thinking, wow, that woman is kind of one of the most amazing examples of Jesus in action. You know, like Jesus being on the cross of his killers and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So I saw this woman and thought that I was like thinking, wow, this is it's hard to understand. But that's that's pretty incredible and admirable. But my friend, on the other hand, saw it in a completely different light. He said to me, that woman is sick. He said she obviously didn't love her son very much. She obviously didn't care about him a great deal because you don't just forgive someone that easily if you really love the person. And you know what? I think it's my friend's reaction that seems in some ways the most natural and normal to most people out there. And I totally get it as well. I understand it. And that's why what this passage is suggesting can seem so absurd. We want to live in a world where it's okay to hate our enemies, where it's okay to seek vengeance on them. You know, I'm a pretty laid back kind of guy, but I can't, and I can't think of many enemies I have, but I do think that if somebody hurt my family, I could see myself going a bit Liam Neeson on it, you know, like, like have you seen Ridley Scott's um, Gladiator, for example, where Russell Crowe's wife and son are murdered and he spends the whole film seeking vengeance on the killer. And there's a great part of the film, very iconic scene, where he stands in front of the man who ordered it to happen and he says this, this is Russell Crowe, he says, um, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. You know, he says it almost as dramatically and well put as that. And well, he says this in this film, the, the cinema goes wild. You know, people are saying, yes, yes, revenge, kill that guy. He murdered your family. And here's me. When I first saw it, I was a church minister at the time. And I remember thinking, yeah, I might be a paid up member of the Happy Jesus Gang, but I am right there with Russell Crowe right now saying, yes, get that scumbag, punish him, kill him, torture him, wipe him out, do whatever it takes because he deserves it. Because vengeance and punishment in those sorts of circumstances, it just feels right. And I don't think we should feel guilty about that instinct. I think it's there in us because, um, we understand God's sense of justice. You know, remember, God might not exist, so this might all be theoretical. But if God does exist, the Bible talks about us being made in his image. Uh, you know, in the Bible, God loves people, but he really does grieve over how they hurt one another. So that initial anger towards people that hurt others is not evil or even wrong. It's something that God has. You know, God looks at the world and says people are being bullied or exploited or abused. You know, God has anger about those things. And so it's not a surprise if we're made in the image to feel that too. So this initial feeling of disgust is normal. I don't think we should fear it. You know, when I read stories like when the, um, the Muslim aid worker was beheaded um, by the Taliban or the little Indian girl was shot in the crossfire in the aisle of a shop, um, because of a gang fight gone wrong. I feel rage and disgust, and I wouldn't have it any other way in a, in a sense because, you know, I don't want to just sit there and look at that and go, oh, well, we should forgive those people. You know, no, you should have the shock and the rage and the, um, the disgust. But once you acknowledge that demand for justice, that they should indeed be arrested, for example, 
I do, as a Christian, try to turn to these words of Jesus about loving your enemies. And that's where you kind of try to understand why they did these things. What got them into this? What is the complications behind this seemingly black and white story? It's like, have you noticed, you know, how easy it is if you see a gangland killing on the news to label the killers as evil monsters? But then if it was your son or your brother or sister or mom or daughter who committed the crime, you'd be horrified by it still, but you'd still have a much more nuanced view. You'd have a quest to understand and hopefully to rehabilitate and not just punish the person because you knew them, you know? So we want the guilty punished and destroyed, not forgiven or uh, loved. Um because often we've allowed them to become a caricature in our minds. Well, imagine, right, if we decide, look, it feels way more natural to just um, not forgive, and it feels way more natural to just um, destroy our enemies. Well, imagine if we said that to, let's say God did exist, and we asked him tonight um, to get rid of the love your enemy system, to take it off the cards because we find it too awkward or stupid or weird. And we've decided vengeance sounds better. Would we want that? You know, would you want that? Well, the problem is, if we did do that, if God granted that prayer, technically, we would all be doomed. Because though we might not realize it, every one of us benefits from the love your enemy system. If you look at the book of Romans in the Bible, you find a really interesting verse from a guy called Paul. Romans 5 verse 10 says, When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Right Now, Paul describes us as God's enemies at one point. Basically, that we've all uh, turfed God out of the driver's seat at some point in our lives. You know, we've hurt others. We've been cruel and uncaring. We've been so preoccupied with our own wounds. We didn't even notice how we were wounding others. And we've pushed, you know, love to the side. Or, um, you know, whether or not we believe in God or not, you know, all of us have kind of let other people down. And some of us, let's be honest, have let other people down very badly indeed. How many of you, when you heard this sermon was about loving your, quote, enemies, how many of you just assumed automatically that you were the goody and that this was all about forgiving the baddies out there? You have to realize that things are not always so cut and dried. You know, sometimes when you read that, see the news, it's all about like, you know, this army, our army is the good army and we're fighting the evil ones in the, in the bad, horrible place. Sometimes it's not as cut and dried as that. It's complicated. And sometimes there are moments in which we act like the enemy. Even the Bible says here that we can be the enemies of God. And when we find ourselves as the enemy, well, this God's system of loving enemies ceases to become so frustrating and actually becomes a bit of a lifeline. Sadly, many people, though, including many Christians, choose to paint God in a vengeful, bitter and unforgiving light. And if that's what God's like, then we really are in trouble. But one of the reasons I'm still a Christian is because uh, into this picture of God smiting and judging gets this, because uh, he can't stand anyone who isn't morally perfect, into that stereotype comes this Jesus guy who is mostly angry with religious hypocrisy and hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes, the rejects of society who he loves. And even when he's nailed to a cross, he loves now, again, don't get me wrong, God might not exist. You might not be into this sort of thing. But if God does exist, then I'm very grateful that the love your enemy system is in place because then I can know that all the times I've let God down or other people down or myself down, the times when I've been an enemy, it doesn't mean that I've lost hope either. And so when you think loving your enemies isn't fair, well, you're probably right. 
If you think it's unjust to love them, you're right. It's unjust. They don't deserve your forgiveness. In the same way, I, I suppose it was unfair for Jesus to love people who were nailing him to a cross. It's not right. But because he expressed love to his enemies, there's hope in the world. And so we take that as inspiration to maybe stop the cycle of bitterness in our, in our lives and in our world. So, so that's the first thing, um, that actually it can make a bit of sense. But the second thing to say is that loving our enemies, in a way, if God exists, it makes us like God. Let me give you an example. My mum makes this noise whenever she's surprised. She says, ee, when she's surprised. She's from the northeast of England. They tend to do that up there. Mum, you're going to be a grandmother. Mum, you've just won a car. <laughs> Mum, there's a poisonous snake in your house. It's bitten you. It's fatal. It just makes this sound. And there are occasional times when, you know, like I'm like, oh, it's so annoying, that sound. Until the day when my little kid walked for the first time and I was so amazed by this, I suddenly went, look at that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what's happening? I'm turning into my own mother. That's a phrase I never expected to say in my life. But have you ever done this? Have you done things that sound like your parents? You, know, you pick up the same mannerisms and phrases. Well, look, that's normal. It's normal to do that because if you're in a family, you take on the family resemblance. Well, our passage here says that the prime aim of loving enemies isn't really just about bringing world peace, as nice as that would be. And it would bring world peace if we all loved one another like this. But no, in verse 45, it says so that we might be children of your Father in heaven. So if you're a Christian here, listen, how you are acting towards your enemies matters. So often I see the church in mortal combat with the world. Like the church thinks it's its job to call out society for being demonic or, or, or um, perverted and acting like they're the only holy chosen ones and everyone else is this dark demonic enemy that must be destroyed or at least avoided and shunned. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not how God acts. You see, when we love our enemies, we act like our father in heaven, according to this passage. And when we don't, we don't. When we are bitter and unforgiving. You ever like that? When we keep records of wrongs with one another. When we delight in the downfall of others, schadenfreude. When we do things we like this, we, we do things that don't resemble God anymore. I think this is relevant to people regardless of their belief in God or not. You know, if you don't believe in God, fine. But there is something powerful about loving others when they don't expect you to love them. It can make a difference in the world. But especially if you claim to be a Christian, this loving your enemies thing is important. And the last thing to say is that loving your enemies is indiscriminate. Can you remember there was a time on TV where like extreme weather was like the major thing for documentaries and on the Discovery Channel, like every other documentary was about tornadoes and hurricanes and chasing storms. I remember at the time thinking like, man, I'd love to do that. What an amazing job it would be hopping a Jeep or something and chase down a tornado. Well, this idea of the weather is interesting because um, the Bible talks about how the weather can teach us pr profound ideas and truths. Um, Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So there's something kind of like the weather's telling us something. And so often our interpretation about that sort of verse might be like, ah, we think that means, oh, thunderstorms remind us of God's mighty strength or something, or gentle rain reminds us of God's provision on the world. 
watering crops and stuff. Well, that's nice, but weather actually teaches us something far more fundamental about, um, I think, God's approach. Think about it. Weather is indiscriminate. If it is a sunny day in your town, everyone will feel the sun. It's not like you'll find one house, let's say the last house on the left where the nasty guy lives, drug dealer or something, and there's a massive storm just over his house alone. Because God doesn't want that person enjoying the sun where all the good guys get to enjoy the sun. It's not like that happens, is it? No, that guy, that drug dealer or whatever, he's sat in the garden in his flip-flops, you know, reading a magazine and drinking a pina colada. Equally, when the storms come to our towns and the rain pounds down, you don't find everyone else getting wet while the, the so-called nice Christians walk in perpetual sunshine. Look at me, who needs an umbrella when you got Jesus? Well, no. They end up getting drowned like rats, like everybody else. And I think this is actually a very interesting and amazing symbol of what you could call God's indiscriminate love. <laughs> we see it every single moment of every day when we look out the window. God seems to love everybody no matter what in a particular location. It doesn't mean that God is oblivious to the evil or good in people's hearts. Verse 45 talks about, you know, uses terms like good and evil. But the interesting bit is he doesn't love those people any more or less. Like it's not based on moral performance. He just loves people no matter what they've done or who they are. And so if we want to be like God, let's say, then we're supposed to treat people like the weather. You know, we treat each other equally. We don't just turn up into a, a place and think, right, well, there's a person I'm going to rain on and there's a person I'm going to shine on. No, the idea is if we can, as much as we can, we love everyone indiscriminately. Yes, we acknowledge there may be evil in their hearts. We don't have to feel an emotional affection like we talked about last week. And yes, we can call the police on them and we don't have to be best buds. But we love them by seeing them as three-dimensional human beings because that's what God does. It's a challenge, but it's a fascinating idea. After all, what's so morally impressive about loving those who love you? Jesus actually talks about this in verse 47. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Sometimes you see people like this on uh, like reality shows on TV, like Big Brother or Love Island or something. And it's like, well, the thing about me is I love my family. Or like, I provide for my kids. I look after my friends. You know, that's not nothing to really brag about. Like, you're supposed to love your kids. You're supposed to support your friends. You're supposed to be good to your family. Let me ask you a question. Do you love your kids if you have them? If you don't have them, imagine you did. Would you love your kids? You do? Big deal. You got grandchildren. Do you love them? Big deal. Now, <laughs> I appreciate some of you might be like, excuse me? No, but I appreciate you might have kids as well who aren't that easy to love. Maybe some of them are move very close, dangerously close even to the enemy file, I don't know. But for most of us, the children in our lives, particularly if they're our own children, we're kind of just hardwired to love them. My point is, it's not that morally impressive to love them. 
in a sense. It takes commitment, all that sort of stuff, but we, it's, it's a natural thing. If they were to commit a terrible crime, we would naturally be bothered and want to know why and to help them. The real and subversive moral breakthroughs come when you care for those people who you don't really know, <laughs> who you um, even dislike when you're willing to see them as three-dimensional human beings. Do you know what? If everybody in my life was friendly and good and never let me down or never hurt me, in one sense, that would be amazing. <laughs> It'd be great. But if that was the case, I would never have had the opportunity to learn how to love at this next level, you know? And so in some ways, in some ways, I'm kind of thankful that I've got sometimes have difficult people in my life, which gives me an opportunity to learn how to raise my game when it comes to being a human being and interacting with those who maybe I don't naturally love. There's a power in that. So there we have it. Four reasons uh, in total why loving your enemies makes a weird sort of sense. Number one, loving your enemies is practical, not emotional. So don't think you have to be gushing with affection for those who hurt you. And don't think it means people shouldn't face consequences for doing bad things, they should. Number two, loving your enemies is a good system. Because if God exists, then we were once enemies of God. So it's a relief to know that there is love for us no matter how bad we've done. Number three, loving your enemies makes you more like God because it shows your family resemblance to God. And number four, loving your enemies is about impartiality. The way God says he loves people like the weather. There is a power in that, whether we believe in God or not. And we might find that, you know, if we're kind-hearted towards not just those who we have an interest in, but actually kind-hearted to others, more difficult people, we might find a change of atmosphere in our lives. So maybe that's what we should strive for as well, as hard as it is. Well, with that in mind, we're going to have a time of prayer and meditation. And feel free to skip this section if you want. But if you're a prayer, find a space in which you can close your eyes. Picture yourself at the very edge of a dark and dense forest. You're looking directly into the forest, the trees that stretch for miles. It's nighttime. And you know for certain that little flashes of light you see in there are not glowworms. They are the flashing eyes of werewolves that live in the wood. Let those werewolves be the enemy. Now, turn 180 degrees. Now tell me, what do you see? You see you are standing at the edge of the forest again, but just looking in a different direction. And now you can see a massive open landscape of mountains and trees. It really is literally like you are standing in a Bob Ross painting, only for real. And there are some werewolves out there too. You can see them from far away. But they aren't the only things you can see in this picture. There's more. Well, speaking of painting, right in front of you, you'll see an easel and a canvas. And the question is simple. What scene would you like to paint in your life? Do you 
you want your life to be the black wood filled with nothing other than you, what you deem to be your enemy? Is that what you want your life to look like? Or would you rather paint an open expanse where you have set those enemies free in a way, perhaps through the tentative steps of forgiveness, but they're still in your life, but you just, they're not the total focus anymore. Well, pick up the brush, look at the blank canvas, and I'm gonna give you a moment of quiet to just observe what your hand is painting. this sort of thing it'll be over in like 30 seconds or so or um you know if you are into it use this as a time to connect spiritually well god we pray that we might firstly recognize that we're not always the goody sometimes actually we have acted like enemies to other people maybe we haven't even realized it maybe we've even acted as an enemy to you well help us to feel reassured that no matter how we have let others or even you down we're still lovable, we can still be accepted, and we can still have forgiveness. Because you always see us in three dimensions. And we pray that that would inspire us to see other people, even our enemies, in three dimensions. It's not easy, it might even take a lifetime. But help us to go beyond just loving those who love us. Take it to the next level. Evolve us like a Pokemon. <laughs> and help us to love as best we can every day. And may that make our lives lighter and more meaningful somehow, every day. Amen. Amen. Apologies for dropping the Pokemon reference during the prayer. It's kind of felt right at the time. <laughs> okay, anyway, we're going to move on to a song. And it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's special musical guest, which is Matt Isaac featuring Ben Grundy. For more information on them, check out the links in the show notes. But for now, it's over to Matt and Ben for a little song called What's the Life of a Man? Yeah. 
Well, that was epic. Thank you so much, Matt, Isaac, and Ben Grundy. Fantastic. And thank you for coming to another service of Creepy Cove Community Church. Please would you spread the word and check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash creepycove. We couldn't exist or be free without the support of our patrons. And do stick around for the Well, thank you for listening to this sermon-only edition of Creepy Cove Community Church podcast. You can find more sermons, but also full services as well if you wanted to check out creepycove.com. Remember, support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash creepycove or visit creepycove.com and sign up to the Peter Laws newsletter so you can stay in the loop. Have a great week. Take care.